But on June 20th of this year, a 42-year-old man named Albert Johnson died in a Las Vegas hospital. And the reason he was hospitalized was due to complications from a disease that he had had for his whole life, sickle cell anemia. But it wasn't the disease that killed him. Tragically, he choked to death on an egg while he was eating a meal in his hospital room. It was an ignominious end to the life of one of the true hip-hop legends of the 1990s. Albert Johnson was better known to rap fans by his MC name, Prodigy. And he made up one half of the New York rap duo, Mob Deep. And Mob Deep were known for their gritty portrayals of urban life, replete with gangs, guns, drugs, and violence. And in one of his most memorable lines from the song, Survival of the Fittest, Prodigy rapped... There's a war going on outside, no man is safe from. You could run, but you can't hide forever. There's a war going on outside, no man is safe from. You can run, but you can't hide forever. And for an urban black youth living in the housing projects of Queensbridge in the late 80s and early to mid-90s, life seemed like it was a war zone. No matter what you did, You couldn't escape the realities of this war. They would catch up with you eventually. And St. Paul would agree with Prodigy. And his message in our passage this morning, it comes at the end of his letter. And his message to the faithful is that there is a war going on outside. That no one is safe from. You can run, but you can't hide forever. So don't run, don't hide, stand your ground and fight. So we're going to look at three different things in this passage this morning. First is the nature of the battle that Paul is talking about, this inescapable battle. And second, the equipment for the battle. And third, the source of our fighting strength. So first, the nature of the battle. As I said, uh, Paul's closing message here is that there is a war going on outside. And the war that Paul is talking about is not against his theological opponents. It's not against the manifold immoralities of the Greco-Roman culture, the milieu in which his ministry is taking place. And it's not against the empire itself, which has Paul in chains. No, Paul says uh, the war is against forces much darker And to our minds in the 21st century, much spookier than those. He admonishes the Ephesians. He says, put on the whole armor of God in order to, quote, stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Spooky, right? But of course, we're good post-enlightenment people, and and so we're not really too comfortable with with what some would pejoratively call mumbo-jumbo, and so we can demythologize Paul's language and say what he's really talking about is kind of the pervasive evil that we see crop up over the world um, from time to time. You know, we, we, we don't believe in the devil, but we believe in ISIS. But I say not so fast. In preparation for this sermon, I reread, or 
I'll be a little more honest and say I re-listened to um, C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. And this is his masterful work that is this imagined correspondence between uh, two demons. An elder demon named uh, Screwtape advising his younger, inexperienced nephew, Wormwood. Wormwood is, is what we call like the demonic equivalent in this book of a, of a guardian a- angel. He's like a dark guardian angel. And so uh, he's been assigned to a, a specific British man known only as the patient... And he's been tasked with luring him into the service of our father below, a.k.a. Satan. And so throughout the letters, uh, uh, which were written against the very real backdrop of the Second World War, I think that's what's one of the things that's so astonishing about these letters, is Lewis wrote them in, in the midst of the Second World War in 1941, before the United States joined the war effort, joined the Allies, so it's against this imagined backdrop of this very real situation that, that Lewis writes about this battle for this man's soul that is playing out through the quotidian struggles of everyday life. And spiritual warfare, as it's imagined in the screw tape letters, isn't spooky. It's all too mundane. And thus all too real and too relatable to us all. So we can't just dismiss it all as superstition. And so here, Lewis's words in the preface are incredibly helpful. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. And then he picks up this theme in one of the letters between Screwtape and and Wormwood. And the question is whether it's better for the devil's purposes that human beings should believe or disbelieve in them. And so here this is Screwtape writing to his nephew Wormwood. He says, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of our existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing effects of results of direct terrorism, and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. At least not yet. I have great hopes that we shall learn in due time how to emotionalize and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is in effect a belief in us though not under that name, will creep in while the human mind remains closed to belief in the enemy. The life force or the worship of sex and some aspects of psychoanalysis may here prove useful. If once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshiping what he vaguely calls forces while denying the existence of spirits, then the end of the war will be in sight. But in the meantime, we must obey our orders. I do not think that you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. And persuade him, since he cannot believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in 
Of course, this is a fictional account, but Lewis is capturing something here so brilliantly. The enemy is crafty. That's why Paul warns us against his schemes. And those schemes are at work, and the battle is being fought whether you believe it is or not. Better to accept the reality of the battle that rages around us and arm ourselves for it than to be ignorant and thus vulnerable to the assaults. So the nature of our struggle is against spiritual forces that exist whether we believe in them or not, whose goal is to lure us away from the kingdom of grace, which is the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of ungrace, which is just another name for hell, the world of just deserts. And since on our own we are powerless to stand against these assaults, we must heed Paul's imperative to put on the whole armor of God. Which brings us to the second thing we're going to look at. The equipment that we need for the battle. The armor of God here referring to the armor that God provides to those who are in his service. Right? And grace means that we can't earn this spiritual armor. That we, we can't procure it for ourselves. We can only receive the pieces of armor as gifts from God. And Paul says put on the whole armor. Not just pieces, because you're going to need each and every one of these pieces of equipment for the struggle. And we have to keep in mind, and and, and it's easy to lose sight of, when we're reading this letter, this is called one of Paul's prison letters. It says in verse 20 that he is an ambassador of God in chains. And so quite literally, as, as a prisoner, Paul would have found himself chained to a Roman soldier who was, uh, you know, tasked with protecting him. At times, mobs wanted to kill Paul, so the Roman soldier's job is to protect him, but it's also to make sure that he doesn't escape. And so it's irresistible to imagine that here Paul is, chained to this Roman soldier, and he's thinking about the Ephesians. Well, how am I going to describe what this battle of faith is like, the struggle of faith is like? What metaphor could I use for this? And then he looks up his chain at the Roman soldier and... He goes, aha. Just as the empire requires armor for its soldiers as it seeks to conquer the world through brute force and military might, so God's soldiers too require armor as Christ seeks to conquer the world through grace. And one of the key differences between the two types of armor and and armies and soldiers is to see who gets armed. And I love, I found this quote from the ancient commentator uh, Theodoret, who wrote, he said, In ordinary battles, the generals do not arm women or children or the aged. But our general, Christ the Lord, distributes this royal armory to all alike. The armor of God is for everyone. All right, so what's included in this array? First is the belt of truth. Now, for us, belts sort of help us keep our pants up. Uh, they didn't wear pants in the ancient world, so the belt had a different role. But it was the most important thing because you needed a belt around your waist, you know, wearing a flowing robe. It's not good to go into battle with that because you could trip and fall or get caught on something or someone could grab you by it. So you don't want to just be flowing out there in the breeze when you're in the battle. And so the belt helps you to do, in the words, the wonderful words of the old expression, to gird your loins which was basically to tuck the flowing part of your robe into your belt so that you could move around really well in the battle. Because if you ain't moving well, you ain't fighting well. 
And, and so the belt was the most basic part of, uh, 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 of what you were carrying. And it was the least sexy thing you could wear as well. I mean, no one is bragging about their shiny belt. But this is what they had. This was the most basic piece of equipment that they needed. The belt of truth. And so the best, most basic thing that we got going for us in fighting the devil is that the gospel is, um, you know, actually true. That's a really, really important thing that we have going for us. Jesus really is who scripture says he is. He really did die for our sins and rise again on the third day. Pour out the spirit in order that we might be united to him, become more like him, and live with him now and forever. All that's true. And so we at least have that going for us when we go into battle. Truth is our most basic weapon against the enemy. And next is the breastplate of righteousness. And the breastplate's job is to protect the vital organs, especially the heart. And we all know how vulnerable the heart is, right? The heart is constantly facing accusations, right? It says, you're not good enough. God doesn't love you, or it's, you know, it's your sins and your mistakes. That's what defines you. Or there are those hearts that are, are, are hardened by pride, right? Self-righteousness that says, God should just be glad I'm showing up. I don't see too many other people like me doing it. Or, you know, at least I'm not like those other Christians, you know, where we can look at uh, Joel Osteen and Lakeward Church. You know, this week he got an easy pile on because uh, his huge, gigantic church did not open its doors, and so he came in for easy criticism. It was like dunking. It was like watching people dunk on sort of a third grader in a basketball game, LeBron James, just watching him get dunked on by people who were, it is an easy target to criticize. And so we go, at least I'm not like him. And while he might be worthy of criticism, it's this pride that hardens our hearts. Both self-loathing and self-righteousness cannot protect our hearts from the enemy. And they lead each in their own way to the two deadliest sins. Right? Self-loathing leads to the sin of despair and self-righteousness to the sin of pride. But what Christ offers is the breastplate of his righteousness. You may have heard that this is the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And Luther's genius was the recovery of the teaching that we are justified by faith. And this word justified, it comes from the same Greek word that is here translated as righteousness. So what protects our hearts most is that the truest thing about us is not what we think about ourselves, good or bad, or what the world thinks about us or tells us, good or bad. What matters most is that the truest thing about us is that when God looks at us, we're wearing the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. Which means that when he looks on us, he sees us not as we are in our sin or our accomplishments, but he sees us as who we are in Christ, which is pure, perfect, and glorious. We are no more ourselves than who we are through faith in Christ. That's the real you. No one can take that away from you. That's what defines you. And it's that truth that protects our hearts from the devil. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. 
All right, so we've got the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. And next on our feet is, given, is the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And some, that Paul, some think that Paul is talking here about our desire to spread the gospel is what we wear on our feet. You know, sort of evangelism boots is what Paul is talking about. But I think what Paul is talking about here is he's talking about that which keeps us grounded, that which allows us to stand our ground and not turn around and run. And that's the gospel of peace. It's a gospel that means we have peace, that we have been reconciled with God and reconciled with one another. And so we can stand our ground because we aren't fighting alone. The gospel of peace tells us that God has our back and our brothers and sisters in Christ are at either side of us. And here again is is that message of unity that is one of the most beautiful themes of this letter. Which plays into the next piece of armor described by Paul. The shield of faith. When you look at the Roman army, they were one of the most invincible fighting forces in the world for for a period of many centuries. And what made them nearly invincible is they were incredibly organized, but one of the chief points of their organization was that they would never break ranks. And so the shields that they would carry into battle were were like the size of a a door. And so you'd hold up your shield and you'd march in your columns and, and it would almost be as if the shields were interlocking. And it was undefeatable. It was like a wall coming at you. And so faith in Christ, Paul says, shields us uh, from the flaming arrows. Here in our translation, it says the flaming darts of the devil. But it's not just our shield protecting us. But all of our shields next to one another that protects us. And, and shields here are almost an offensive weapon, allowing our ranks to advance behind enemy lines. It's often said in this passage that that the sword is the only offensive weapon mentioned, and technically that's true. But the shield could be seen as the defensive weapon that allows you to go on offense. The cliche is true. The best offense is a good defense. And on this combination of shield and sword, Calvin says that they go together so closely because it is by faith We repel the attacks of the devil. And by the word of God, he is slain outright. Because against the assault of the enemy, the word is our weapon. We see this when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, right? He is able to defeat Satan by using scripture. And that's why the first marker of healthy missional congregations, healthy pursuing Christ, missional pursuing Christ's priorities in the world is the centrality of the Word of God. We've got to read it, study it, know it, pray it, and trust in, in all of that in conscious, dispen- uh, in conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. God is going to work in us and through us. Right? If we want to stand firm and not get bowled over, we've got to be a Scripture-shaped and a Scripture-saturated community. I did skip over the helmet of salvation, but but this means our knowledge that we already belong to the family of the crucified and risen Christ. Jesus, whose name itself means salvation. 
Yeshua, Jesus, salvation. We already belong to him, and therefore we have already been rescued from the ultimate enemy that enables us to face all secondary enemies. Now, most treatments, when we're talking about the armor of God, we go, all right, we've run through the whole raiment. We're done. But Paul's sentence, when he's talking about putting on the whole armor of God, it it doesn't stop with the sword. He saves the most potent and powerful weapon for last. Prayer. Paul says, pray at all times in the Spirit. And so the real power for the battle comes from spirited, fervent prayer. And the important thing about prayer isn't how it works, but that in God's mysterious economy, it does. There's this great quote from the 20th century Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, who said, When I pray, coincidences happen. And when I stop praying, coincidences stop happening. And I think the three most important things we can say about prayer are, one, it works. Two, we're not quite sure how it works. And three, that doesn't really matter as long as we keep doing it. Right? Where there is no prayer, there is no power. But where there is much prayer, there is much power. This much we know is true. And back to Martin Luther. He's famous for this comment, I have so much to do today that I'm going to need to spend three hours in prayer in order to accomplish it all. All right, so we've seen the nature of our battle. We are engaged, whether we like it or not, in spiritual warfare each and every day. In the mundane and heroic struggles of life, there is a battle going on for our souls. And we've seen the armor that God provides us with to prevail in this battle. And so the last thing we have to consider is the source of our strength. And my fear is that if I just stopped the sermon now, the prevailing message that you would take away would be, try harder to do better. And that's good advice, but it's not good news. Because if we just try to sort of take these up as helpful pieces of advice for living the life of faith or living your best life now, if we try to put on and use the armor of God by ourselves, we'd be a little bit like the young David before he was king. When he went to see his brother at the front lines and he saw Goliath, the champion of the Philistines, mocking God's armies. And David's like, well, I'll fight him. And so King Saul hears this and he says, okay, David, you want to fight him? I'll give you my armor to wear. And then David is fitted with Saul's armor and and he doesn't wear it because it doesn't fit. Presumably to comic effect, like a, a little boy dressing in his father's suit. And the effect of a little kid in big person clothes is always amusing, But no one thinks that the little boy in the business suit is actually going to go into work and expect to be taken seriously as an adult. That's why the key to all this is in verse 10. There Paul writes, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And a very wooden translation of the Greek is, Be empowered in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The message is clear, the power to put on the whole armor of God and to use it for its intended purposes to stand firm in the battle against the enemy. It doesn't come from us, but from the Lord. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. The Lord alone is the source of our strength. 
The same Lord who led a revolution without violence. Who never took up arms and who laid down his life willingly. Who when his disciple wielded a sword of flesh and blood and cut off the ear of the high priest's servants, Jesus healed the ear of that servant saying, All who live by the sword of flesh and blood will die by the sword. Jesus was the strongest man who ever lived. He he could drive the devil away with a word of scripture. He could still storms with a command. Demons fled at the sound of his voice. Sicknesses were healed with a simple prayer or touch. That's real power. That's real strength. And Jesus gives us all the pieces of God's armor. He is the truth which secures our belt. It's his righteousness that guards our heart. His gospel of peace that digs our heels to hold the line, hold the line against the charges of the enemy. His faithfulness that covers us like a shield and is strong enough to squelch every arrow aimed our way. His name itself means salvation and is the helmet that adorns our head. And he is at the right hand of the Father praying for us. And our prayers are folded into his prayers. And because of him, the Father listens to every word we speak. The armor is Christ, and it belongs to Christ. And it is only by Christ's strengths we can use it at all. But use it, we can. And stand firm, we can. And we can fight with a a joie de guerre, because we fight together. The whole armor of God means that we can be happy warriors in the battles against whatever our own personal wormwoods or screw tapes might throw at us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.